Well, this morning we are going to return to the Gospel of Matthew after quite a while, only dipping our toe really back in recently. But today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11, where we begin a new section. And over the last 10 chapters, really, Matthew has worked hard to present to his audience irrefutably that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the long-awaited Messiah, and truthfully, the bona fide Savior of the whole world. And the general structure thus far has consisted of Matthew chapters 1 through 10 essentially establishing the deity of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is called the son of Abraham, the son of David. In chapter 1, verse 16, he's called the Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one. And verse 21 conveys that he has come to save his people from their sins. Chapter 3, verse 17 identifies Jesus as the beloved Son of God in whom he is well pleased. Chapter 5, 6, and 7, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, establishes Jesus as the one true authoritative teacher, really the incarnate Word. Matthew 8 and 9 establish Jesus as the miracle worker and divine healer. Or as chapters 5 through 7 demonstrate that Jesus knows all things, chapters 8 and 9 show that he can do all things. In short, nothing is impossible for him. And that actually becomes very important as we progress through our text today. Chapter 10 really sees Jesus as the master, the discipler, the missionary sender, where he deputizes ten, uh, excuse me, 12 of his disciples to go out and proclaim the gospel uh, to all uh, of Israel, the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew chapter 11 really drops us in the immediate moments after the sending of the 12. He prepares to depart uh, for his next phase of ministry. And so that's where we pick up today, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 as we continue on in our narrative here. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now at this point, Jesus is still ministering in the northern part of Israel in the region of Galilee. These are the towns and villages the disciples are traveling to as Jesus intends to minister there as well. But chapter 11, verse 1, really drops us again into the very next moments after the sending. And we we read here that Jesus had finished giving the instructions, which is all of chapter 10. He gives them to the disciples. And at which, which point he departs from there, he goes out from there. He sends them out as they're ready to go. He also goes himself, and he's going to go and preach and teach as well in these Galilean cities. So verse 1 really sets up not only uh, the verses immediately that follow, but they're also setting up the events that are going to come in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, all the way till chapter 15, verse 20. And that's where Jesus is going to move on from the Galilean region to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And so really we're at a transitional point in Matthew's gospel. But for right now, he's ministering in the region of Galilee. Now somewhere along the way, 
he is visited by some men. Verse 2 tells us that they were disciples of John. John. Now we know from the context this is none other than John the Baptist. There's lots of Johns in Scripture, but this is John the Baptist. We've already encountered John back in Matthew chapter 3. In fact, if you turn back in your Bible, just a couple of pages, we're going to go back to Matthew 3 for just a minute. Go back to Matthew 3. Now, we know from Luke's Gospel uh, that John and Jesus are actually related through their mothers. Their mothers are related, and it's likely the two of these men were, were distant cousins, and perhaps they even grew up next to each other or near each other. They, they knew each other prior to this first encounter where Jesus gets baptized by John. But their connection really is not as important as their function. The reason that John is sent in the way that he's sent before Jesus, that's what's really most important. And John, who is really regarded really as more of an eccentric character, is nothing short of the prophesied forerunner to the Messiah. And Matthew 3 records the nature of this ministry. Pick it up in Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around the waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem uh, was going out to him in all Judea and in the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance." But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, if you remember back when we studied John the Baptist a little bit more here, that John is really coming in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah, even though John himself denies that. They come and they say, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. But of course, Jesus later really clarifies that in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, which we're going to see in a couple weeks here. He says that he himself is Elijah, if you will accept it. And then he even further qualifies and says, well, he's actually, Luke one seventeen. he says he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. We're going to talk about what that means shortly in a few weeks here. But the whole purpose of John's life and ministry is to prepare the people of God to receive their Messiah. He was going to clear the way, prepare the way, removing the obstacles, removing all the, uh, he's going to fill in all the holes and the gaps. He's going to make the mountains uh, that, that are impeding the path lower. He wants to make a straight, clear path for the Lord. And how is he going to do that? He's going to tell the people that they also have to do the same thing. And what does it mean to prepare the way for the Lord to come? Well, he's talking about repenting of your sins and acknowledging your need of a coming Savior. It's not just like the people woke up one day, there's Jesus, and they say, oh, I've got to figure out what this means. John came before and he said, the Messiah is coming, get your heart ready now. 
Prepare the way. And he talks all about repentance and bearing the fruits of repentance, dealing with sin, getting your heart softened and ready for the Lord. And so John is dressed like a prophet. He speaks like a prophet. He spared nobody in his preaching. And that's actually what got him in trouble, is he spared nobody in his preaching. And by the time we get to Matthew 11, however, we're going from Matthew 3 to his powerful preaching ministry. By the time we get to Matthew 11, he's in prison. He's in prison. Why is he in prison? Turn over to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, the next gospel over, just a few pages in. Both Matthew and Mark record very similar events here. But really, Mark gives us a little bit more. Usually when I'm looking at parallel passages, I try to find not just what's going to work best with our sermon today to explain things, but I want to find the passage that has the most details. I want to fill in the gaps in our understanding. So I think Mark is very helpful here, even though uh, Matthew is, is adequate as well. But really, the, the events of Mark 6, Mark 6, these are told in flashback. It's very interesting how the gospel writers do this. They move in the story progressively, something happens, and they say, oh, this is what happened over here, and they're jumping around in the timeline whenever they talk about John the Baptist. So for our purposes in keeping the timeline, we know that John has has not only been arrested, but we know he's going to be killed. He hasn't been killed yet. By the time of Matthew 11, where we are chronologically, John the Baptist is still alive. John's still alive, even though though we know he's going to die. But this flashback gives us a reason for both the imprisonment as well as his subsequent death. So Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Again, this is an event that's being told in flashback. For Herod himself, verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard of him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for the lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, If you want to give me, uh, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head and went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. And so John, again, sparing nobody in his preaching, had come to know the sins of King Herod. Now, Herod had fancied himself to be a king in Israel, even though really he was more like a local despot. He really didn't have very much power. The Caesar, the Roman Caesar, ruled over all of Israel at the time, and yet he afforded Herod just a little bit of power. 
uh, to keep things in balance here. But we know from Mark 6.20 that Herod actually liked listening to John. It's always, it's always perplexing to me when you hear people who are n- not Christians or even agnostics or atheists, but they really like Christian preachers. I'm reminded of the story of Ben Franklin, who was maybe a deist at best, but Ben Franklin loved the preaching of George Whitfield. Now, he didn't believe a word of it, but he liked the idea that George Whitfield was so passionate and delivered such great sermons, and so he, they had a friendship. Ben Franklin and George Whitfield were actually close friends. It's a similar thing here, maybe not as close, but, but Herod liked listening to John preach, and it's like the harder he preached, he liked it more for some strange reason. So he liked John, he liked listening to John, John was an engaging preacher. He knew his Bible and probably preached very convicting sermons, even though Herod himself showed no signs of being convicted of his sin. Nonetheless, he enjoyed John's preaching. We also know that Herod is also afraid of John because he was a holy and righteous man. There's something mysterious and enigmatic in, 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 uh, in a way that draws you in to a person who is righteous, and that was Herod's fascination as well. He knew that John was a genuine prophet. At least he had enough sense not to mess with him. He protected him. But also we know that Herod's new wife, Herodias, she didn't share the sentiment. She didn't have the same fascination with John that her husband did. She actually hated John. Why? Because he called out their sin. They were in sin. And Mark records that Herod actually had stolen his brother Philip's wife. Herodias was married to Philip. And somehow, whether it's through uh, adultery, either, either she cheated on her husband or something else happened and they were divorced unlawfully or whatever the reason, we don't know. But we do know that the bottom line is this. Both Herod and Herodias were committing sexual sin and they were wrongfully married. Wrongfully married. And everybody knew it, including John. And the question is, okay, who's going to say something? John's going to say something. And that's what he does. He goes right in for it. He, he calls them out in their sin. And he calls for them. He commands them to repent. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You're wrong. This brings us to a very present issue for today. The pervasiveness of sexual sin. We're living at a time, really, where there is no shame. What would make our grandparents blush now appears on most children's TV shows. In the wake of the sexual revolution of the 60s, we've seemed to come into this place where we see a rise of this kind of sexual sin that's that's unsurpassed since the Roman Empire. Everything is permitted these days. In fact, I would go even farther to say everything is celebrated today. Sexual immorality and promiscuity are normal vices. Pornography is glamorized. Adultery has been called by some psychologists a healthy exploration. It's very backwards. Homosexuality is celebrated. Gay marriage has also become codified within the last decade. We see this progressive push to normalize transgenderism. And even as recently as this week, this week, USA Today ran an op-ed calling for more understanding for those who are dealing with the issue of pedophilia. More understanding. And they actually, they deleted, they pulled the article down after all the backlash. But that's what's going on even right now. Pandora's box has been opened, and they don't want to close it. And I know you know what I'm talking about. You probably have seen this just as much as I have. They don't want to be told that they're wrong, and they don't want to be told that they're in sin. And it's the same thing that Herodias was dealing with as well, which is why John lost his head. But we've seen this shift from a push for tolerance to a demand for full-on acceptance. 
In fact, progressivism is now weaponizing the court system against anyone who would take a stand for biblical morality. On January 8, 2022, this year, just this past week, the Canadian government passed a bill known as C-4. It's a bill that criminalizes so-called conversion therapy. Now, the term conversion therapy is very broad. Now, it ranges from manipulative and borderline abusive tactics, which we would rightly reject that, but it also goes even as far to include even meager attempts to counsel people who are struggling with sexual sin. And in the preamble of this bill, it articulates that the notion of heterosexuality, gender identity, gender expression being assigned to a person at birth is a myth. A government document is calling what God has created a myth and is criminalizing this. Even as far as Indiana, recently there is in in Lafayette, Indiana, there is a a local legislation going through that's going to fine biblical counselors up to $1,000 a day for even daring to talk to anybody. If if an underage person comes to them to talk about something that they're going through, whether it's sexual expression or transgenderism or anything like that, A Christian counselor can be fined by the local government for ministering to them. So it's happening even in our country right now. But the Bible declares in no uncertain terms that God has created two sexes. And Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19.4. In the beginning, God made them male and female. This is a design by God. We're not to be ashamed of this. We're not to be even belligerent by this. This is simply biological fact. It's creation fact. And so there has only ever been two sexes, male and female, because in God's design and even in genetics, there can only be two sexes, male and female. And a sexual relationship, even further, is only to exist between one man and one woman for life, and that's called marriage. What about homosexual desires for the same sex? Romans 1, 24 through 28, the Bible calls this desire impure and degrading and unnatural and depraved. A very strong language for this. But now in Canada, if a pastor tells a person this, all this information, and calls them to repent for a desire or for a lifestyle, they can actually face up to five years in prison for doing so. This is wrong, beloved. And right now, as I'm standing here, there are thousands of pastors across North America, United States, and Canada that are preaching on this very issue because this, this, the world is creeping further and further in. And at a certain point, you have to stop and take a stand and say, I'm sorry, this is wrong. There is love for people. There is grace. But at a certain point, when governments begin to weaponize the courts against the church and against God's morality, this is God's law that he has set up. We must say something. But the Bible goes even further. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 explicitly states, this is the word of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall enter the kingdom of God. Excuse me, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then he adds this, and such were some of you. This implies a change. This implies a conversion. This is not just a matter of calling sins out there. We can stand here all day and call out all of their stuff out there. This goes even further. This is talking about stuff in here. 
where Paul tells the church, the Corinthian church, who he loves, such were some of you. You guys were dealing with this stuff. You guys were coming out of these sins. And he gives so, a long list of this. And so we are to, to look inward at some of these things as well. But here's the problem. Therapy's not going to touch it. Behavior modification is only going to mask the true problem. There's only one way to deal with the sins of the heart, and that is to change the heart. To change the heart. And only Jesus Christ can do it. Only Christ can change the heart. But we cannot be silent here. Why? Two main reasons, I believe. Because the first one, we care about people. The bottom line is that you're going to be called hateful and bigoted and whatever you're going to be called for making these kinds of statements. But the bottom line is that sexual sin, it destroys people's minds and their bodies and their lives. It ruins relationships. I, I lament and I mourn even now because it's my beloved word. It's coming to this. We're going to have a whole generation of young adults who ruin their bodies and their parents ruin their bodies. They're going to be coming into the church unsure of who they are, what sex they are, and they're going to be crying out for God, and we have to know how to help them. It's coming. It's already coming. I've already counseled people who are dealing with this stuff. It's difficult to deal with, but the bottom line is that because we care about people, because God cares about these people, we have to love them enough to tell them the truth and not let them wander off and ruin themselves. That's the practical aspect of it. But the second is that all sin. All sin, and for America right now, sexual sin is kind of the top of the pile, and the very pinnacle of that pile is the sin of abortion, which is coming on the heap, the the trash heap of all this other sexual sin. But the bottom line is that all sin is an affront to the character and righteousness and the commands of God. John the Baptist believed this and preached this, and he was killed for it. He lost his life over this, but we are not permitted by God to bow the knee to any of this. I'm not talking about walking this back five years or ten years. I'm talking about walking this back 50 years, longer. The bottom line is that God has a standard. And we can't waffle just because culture seems to be shifting one way or another. Now, I think there's a right and a wrong way to do this. But it's important that we know the truth. And we are not permitted, like I said, to bow the knee. But with grace and with humility and with kindness, we are to stand against any and all sin and never back down. But the question is, I've said all that, is that it? We're just to take a stand and call that a day? Are we just supposed to get angry and shout at people for sinning? No. No. Because in our standing, beloved, we have something that the world does not have. We have real truth. We have real love. We have real help. And we have a true and lasting salvation in Jesus Christ. Go back to Matthew 11. Matthew 11 actually deals with this very thing. The very thing that John the Baptist is imprisoned for, Jesus gives the answer to. We're going to see that just in a bit here. Verse 2 tells us that John is in prison. He's in prison for preaching against the very same stuff I just talked about. And now we know why. He's called out King Herod's sexual sin. And he's languishing in this prison. If you know anything, we'll talk about John's prison in a couple weeks here. But the prison he's in is awful. And he keeps on hearing reports about Jesus doing this work of ministry. Jesus traveling around and, and healing people and teaching and preaching. The Bible says here that he hears the works of Christ, which is no less than Jesus' teaching ministry and his ministry of miraculous power. But he hears about all this and he begins to wonder, 
Is Jesus our Messiah? Is this really the one? John gave his life for this ministry. He's about to die for this ministry. And you have to think at some point in his weakest moment, he's thinking to himself, is this really right? Is he really the one who has come? Now, some have maintained there's no way that John could have questioned all this. After all, John was the first one to declare that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. But let me tell you, six months in a dungeon could give you second thoughts. It makes you question all kinds of things. After all, the Messiah was supposed to come with unquenchable fire to deliver the people and destroy his enemies. But Jesus hasn't done that yet. John has spent his entire ministry preaching against sin and warning about judgment, and then Jesus has come, and there's no fire. There's no judgment. What's going on? What was he waiting for? Why isn't he judging? Why isn't he following through? When is he going to judge sinners and set the wrong things right? Isn't that the question for today? We look around and we say, Lord, it's so bad right now. When are you just going to come and make this right? I mean, government's failing, Society programs are failing. People are at each other's throats. When is everything just going to get fixed? Well, it's not going to get fixed until Christ returns. And so we say, Lord, come quickly. Come now. What are you waiting for? So John is asking the same questions, and he sends his disciples to go inquire of Jesus. And Luke actually records that he he sends two, two disciples. And they go to Jesus. They come to him. In verse 3, I'm back in Matthew 11 now, they say to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Literally, the Greek phrase means the coming one, the expected one, the one that we're waiting for. This is no less than a reference to the Messiah prophecies here. In terms of the coming one, Psalm 40 makes reference to the Lord coming to his people. So he was promised to come to them, and even says he's going to have this scroll of the book written about him. So he's going to be written about, and he's going to be coming and being declared to all the people in the Scriptures. Psalm 118.26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to come to his people. And so again, they're expecting somebody to come to them. They wanted to, to have somebody arrive to deliver them. But the question is this then. Well, what is he coming to do? Why is the Messiah coming to earth? Is he coming to overthrow the Romans? That's what they wanted. That's why the zealots existed. They wanted to kind of speed the process along. Is he coming to to burn up all the sinners? Is that what he's coming for? Is he coming to establish Israel as the dominant world power? Is that why he's coming? Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't seem to be doing any of this at the moment. And so they ask, are you the expected one? Are you the one we're waiting for? Or should we be waiting for someone else? Look how he responds in verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, notice something here. He doesn't answer the question, does he? He doesn't say yes or no. That's what they're looking for. Yes or no. What what can we bring back to John, our poor friend who's languishing in prison? He doesn't give them a yes or no, but rather he gives them something a little bit better, believe it or not. Better. It's truth, but it's multi-layered truth. He responds by highlighting his marvelous works. 
And we see all the evidences of the fulfillment of all of this in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus says, the blind receive sight, we see that fulfilled in Matthew 9.27, where Jesus heals the blind men who are crying out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. We saw this a few months ago. Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, we see the lame walk, don't we? The man who was lowered down through the roof by his friends, and Jesus starts by forgiving his sins, which seems strange at first, but then as soon as he does that, he commands him to take up his bed and walk, and he does, demonstrating that Christ is able to both heal the body and heal the soul. It's powerful. Next, we see the lepers are cleansed in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, as the man with leprosy prostrates himself before Jesus, and he's healed. Matthew 9, 32 to 33, records the healing of a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak, and Jesus heals them. And he's able to speak, and he's able to hear. What about the dead being raised up? Certainly our mind goes to John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus, but even here in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus heals, revives, and heals Jairus' daughter. Remember that story in Matthew chapter 9? He's already doing that work. And then finally, he declares that the poor have the gospel preached to them. Well, this happens consistently all throughout Matthew's gospel. We see it in chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 23, all through chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is proclaiming this good news, the good news of his ministry, his coming, his salvation to the people. And so on one level, he's answering their question, are you the one we're waiting for? And on one level, he's saying, well, look at the ministry. Do do you think that I'm the one who's come? Do you doubt that I'm the one you're waiting for based on what you see? That's one level of it. In fact, that sentiment is uttered somewhere else in John 7.31. The crowds are saying, When the Christ shall come, will he not perform signs than those which this man has performed? He's not going to do more than this man, is he? Everybody saw this. They saw these miraculous signs day in and day out. Jesus healing and teaching and raising the dead and calming the seas. And at a certain point, you have to stop and go, there, there can't be anybody better than this. So on one level, that's the first layer of response. When they come and say, are we waiting for you or somebody else? Who's the somebody else you're going to be looking for? All these signs, all this power, all of these wonderful works of Christ. But here's another level to this. The Old Testament had prophesied various markers, various signs of the Messiah's coming. And of these signs, we read this in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. This is 700 years before the arrival of Christ. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be, un- deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed one means Messiah. It means Christ. He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, the Bible says, and to destroy sinners. Read John 3. Jesus says, I didn't come for that. Not this time. But rather, He came that the world would be saved through Him. Jesus came to save sinners and minister to them. He came to redeem and save that which has been lost. Yes, He stands for truth. He preaches truth constantly. So did John. 
But in that truth, there is love. John chapter 1, the prologue, Jesus, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Yes, we are truth, 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 but there's also grace. Grace to tell a person when you're hurting, when you're brokenhearted, when you're cast down, when you're suffering, when you're struggling. There's grace for you. There's Christ for you who can heal you and restore you and mend you and save you. So on one level, John, he, Jesus is saying to John, John, if you want to know who I am, go back and read Isaiah. Read Isaiah 35. Read Isaiah 61. You're going to see that the prophecy is pertaining to me. I'm the one who fulfills the Old Testament. So you want to know who's coming? I'm here. I'm here. And as we've seen, Jesus heals the physical. That's what he's laying out here in John 11. He's healing the physical ailments, the physical ailments, all the physical problems, but he's doing so to demonstrate that he has the authority to heal the spiritual. That's what really plagues us, isn't it? I'll tell you, we can get sick, we can get hurt, we pray for each other. When people have cancer, when they've had heart problems, when they've had viruses, when they have all kinds of stuff, we pray for the physical. People who are financially hurting. All kinds of things like that. The physical is important to God. But guess what? So is the spiritual. And I would even even say eminently more important to God is the spiritual. And if Jesus has the authority to heal eyes and legs and ears and skin, He's after hearts too. He can minister to your heart. He can heal you. That's our message. Beloved, that's the same Christ that we preach. Christ came to save the sexually immoral. He came to save the adulterer and the homosexual and the pornographer and those with trans, struggling with gender dysphoria, transgenderism. He came for pedophiles as well as for the prideful and for the slanderer and the legalist and the gossip and the godless. When people come here broken, we have an obligation to be honest with them about their sin. We have to tell the truth. We have to. But we also have the blessed opportunity and the gospel charge to tell them that Jesus Christ is able to redeem them and transform them and even comfort them. It doesn't mean we're okay with sin. But it means that we get to love people and say, Christ is here for you. And because He's here for you, I'm here for you. And I will love you through this. I will call you to repentance, but I will love you no matter what happens. That's really important. And that's why Jesus says in John 6, uh, excuse me, verse 6 here, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The Greek word is skandalizo. It means to stumble over, to put something in front of and cause to stumble. And so we preach a Christ who is not to be stumbled over. A person who does not stumble over him and take offense will receive the blessing of Christ. However, we know from Matthew 18 that there is also, on the flip side of this, on the inverse, there is a curse for anyone who causes a person to stumble over the gospel. Jesus actually says it would be better for that person who causes my little ones to stumble. It's better for them to tie a weight around their neck and go drown themselves and sink to the bottom of the sea. Jesus is deadly serious about this. 
But woe to the person who causes another person to stumble over the gospel. And let me tell you, when a government tells a Christian that they cannot minister the gospel to a person who's trapped in sin, that government is cursed. And they're operating outside of the will of God. This is not about politics. This is about redeeming truth and being honest before kings, governors, presidents. I do not care. It matters about God's truth being vindicated in the public square. God's truth will stand. It will be made fixed. And even when this nation burns and falls, someday it will. I have no idea when, but every single one of them does. God's truth will remain forever. And that is what we build our lives on. That's all we have. And so we rightly stand against any person, entity, ruler, governing authority who attempts to hinder gospel ministry. You can lock us up and throw away the key. That's fine. We'll have a prison ministry. It'll be great. But as soon as you say you cannot minister gospel help and gospel truth to a person who's struggling, you have just gone against your own authority. And now you're entering into the domain of God to redeem people. And it's wrong. It's wrong. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation, for sanctification, and for transformation to those who would believe. And what is that gospel? The gospel is this. That all of us have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, me included, me foremost. All of us have sinned and done what is right in our own eyes. We've turned against God. We've rebelled in our own way. And the Bible says that all of us are worthy of death because of that. However, God in His grace and mercy extends extends salvation by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, never once sinned in His entire life, never could sin, but came wrapped in a human body and lived on this earth a perfect life and then gave up that life as a ransom to pay for us, to redeem us. And He shed His blood on the cross and that blood was payment for all of my sins, past, present, and future does not matter how deep that sin goes, how interwoven that sin is into my own propensity, my own nature. It does not matter. There's nobody beyond saving. You need to know this. There's nobody beyond salvation. That God can save anybody. Christ came and died, gave His life on the cross, was buried, and then He rose the third day to bring new life to all who would turn from their sins and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. My friends, we have good news to all people. To all people. This is not just about sexual immorality, even though that's the the theme of the day because of what's going on in the world. It's about all sin. All sin is met with the Gospel of Christ. And if you do not know Jesus, if you're here today or watching online, if you don't know Jesus, here's an opportunity for you to turn from your sins, to say to God, I've done the wrong thing. I'm doing this my own way. I followed my own course. I've defied you. And I don't want this anymore. I want to be saved. Cry out to God in repentance and say, Lord, forgive me and help me, redeem me, save me and change me. And by His grace, He will. Your life might not get easier. Your sins are not going to completely all go away. You won't be perfect until glory. But He will minister to you. And even if you struggle in this life, He will be with Him in glory forever with a glorified mind, a glorified heart, a glorified body, with Him, seated in the heavenly places with Christ. 
It's a marvelous gospel. It's the gospel for every age, every person, every day. It does not matter. And so we take our stand on the truth. It is God's truth. It is also our truth. It is the truth of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up your name on high. And Lord, I I do not stand in this pulpit with brazenness, with pride, with arrogance, with any kind of a feigned masculinity or dominance or anything like that. I have no inherent power. All of us are your servants. We are humble before you. But God, we elevate your truth, not just today. Lord, we elevate your truth every day because we acknowledge as your people that you are the sovereign Lord and what you say goes. And your word cuts to the very core of who we are. And you convict each one of us of our sins. And Father, you know every one of us has different sins we struggle with. None of us are the same. But God, all of us still need you. We still need your grace. And Lord, we're here as the church of Jesus Christ. We're here only because you've been gracious to redeem us. And only because you've been gracious to bring us to this place to worship with other believers around the same cross, the same word, and by the same grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us both in our convictions truth and love, that we would not back down from being truthful, not cower, even when the opposition seems insurmountable, even when it's a a government mandate saying we can't do or say or believe whether we risk being canceled, whatever that means. Lord, we know that your truth cannot be removed. And so, Father, we stand on your truth. But I also pray that you would help us to cultivate a heart that is humble, a heart that is lowly, a heart that doesn't attack people, but yet sits with them in their pain and in their discomfort, Lord, and sometimes even in their sorrow with grace and with compassion and with love and simply points them to the great shepherd. Lord, help us to manifest this spirit of truth and love. Be gracious to us, Lord, because such were some of us. But the Bible says we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified because of the gospel of Christ and his work on the cross. So, Lord, help us. Help us to stand. Help us to have the right character and the right godliness. We do all things here, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.